Rachel Haywire, thanks for joining me on Team Futurism. Hey, how are you? Doing, doing well. So the, the last time we spoke in person, I think it was in San Francisco pre-pandemic, maybe 2019 thereabouts. And I think that we were, I was interviewing you about your presidential run at the time. You were, I think, kind of running on the Transhumanist Party and then maybe as an independent. I know that like a ton has happened since then, but... I just kind of want to get a little background on on uh, what you've been up to the last couple of years. Wow, yeah, that seems like eons ago. It's it weird how time kind of slows down and speeds up. Since then, I've been doing a lot of writing. I've been working a lot on a new design agency focused on artificial intelligence. And I've also been pivoting to, I just even call it a more professional futurist role you know like running for president is fun it's mm. a great time everybody should do it but ultimately I wanted to make a bigger impact and I found that my true talent was predicting the future that's what I've always done and I've always done it from a cultural angle the name of my substack is the cultural futurist and my thing is understanding the way that culture affects the future, understanding how cultural trends play a role in the development of future technologies and also how future technologies play a role in social evolution. So I've been advising people about what's happening in the future and how this plays into the wider cultural picture. That's awesome. Yeah, I've really enjoyed your Substack sub recently. I want to ask you about a couple of your articles specifically today. Um, are you, you said that you're in Florida now. I, I heard vaguely that you moved back to San Francisco, but is that is that not true? Yeah, so I'm currently dual locationist. I live in San Francisco and I also live in Florida. It's a long story involving finances and geography and a bunch of professional details that would probably bore you. Um, but let's just say that I'm a dual resident of California and Florida at the moment. Well, I mean, this is kind of interesting to me. On this podcast, we end up talking about San Francisco every now and then. I'm kind of curious if you have a take on the state of the city and maybe the future of it. <laughs> it's a degenerate shithole. We're all going to hell <laughs> with a bunch of fat addicts on the street. No, I'm, honestly, the, the wealth gap is massive. Um, I am really depressed by all the people that have moved out, all the creative talent. They've either been shoved out to Oakland or Portland, or they're living in dilapidated buildings. You've got roommates six people they got roommates you got roommates everywhere um it's rough i've seen good friends of mine i mean this is a little bit real um i don't know if i'm being a downer here but i've seen good friends of mine really take the downward plunge because of the massive wealth disparity and they're they're not doing very well they're they're struggling and they're suffering um and then i've seen other friends of mine get really wealthy and you know kind of cut off everybody beneath them um it's it's really given me a new outlook it's it's quite sad mm -hmm. um at the same time i think that 
that gives people an opportunity to rebuild in a way they might not have had before. San Francisco was previously quite established. It definitely had its institutions. It definitely had its gatekeepers. Um, now mm -hmm. it's sort of like a wide open playing field. It's um, it's open, you know, mm -hmm. and people have the ability to reimagine it and recreate it. And San Francisco, it's it's kind of like a blank canvas right now, and that that creates an entirely new wealth of opportunity. Yeah, I think that that's a good perspective. I, I think that I kind of agree with that. It was interesting. There was an article in the Atlantic a couple of days ago that one of the notes in there was that if if cities actually built to accommodate as many people as who, who want to live there, New York would be, I think it said like 10 times as big and San Francisco would be like eight times as big. That's interesting to me because I, I keep thinking that all of those extra people who would love to move to San Francisco, that probably is the artist class. It's probably a lot of artists, a lot of people who don't make six figures who would love to just participate in the the natural, you know, vibrancy of the place, but can't because it's just crazy expensive. And I remember just, you know, I had to move back to Sacramento because of, you know, I had a baby and then life got crazy expensive because oh. of that. So I moved back to Sacramento. But uh, even like when I first moved to the Bay Area, I remember just thinking like, where are all the local bands? There just like weren't as many as you would kind of expect. And there weren't especially very many trashy kind of shitty garage bands that you would just see at, at like a dive bar. Almost almost none of that. Like the, the, the divey bands were all based in maybe Oakland or even Sacramento were kind of far away. And I don't know, that, that always kind of depressed me that I think that San Francisco, because of the housing prices and everything, it's just a, maybe just in general, a bad place for artists to, to live. Um, but I don't know, that's, that's maybe, yeah. maybe that's too bleak, but. It's really unfortunate. And there are some good shows in Oakland. There are still some good parties in Oakland. Mm -hmm. That's where the underground scene is. I mean, if you don't have artists living in a city, the cultural production disappears and the city itself suffers. So it's not just the artists themselves that are suffering because they can't afford to live there. It's everybody from the people that run the small businesses to the tech workers, to the entrepreneurs, to the everyday person on the street, they're seeing less creativity when they walk around, they're seeing yeah. less art, they're hearing less music, there are less places for them to go where they can enjoy themselves and the culture has declined as a result of all the artists moving away and that affects everybody negatively. So, you know, people are like, well, what happened to San Francisco? And, you know, they, they like to blame it on drugs and poverty and, and yeah, but it's also the lack of artistic output and that that's a major problem. Um, there, there are people that are looking to fix that. There are people that are starting initiatives to bring art back to San Francisco. I mean, one of the things that caught my eye was that the city was funding people to create pop-ups now, which I was like, okay, wait a minute. This is something. This is something that's happening now. And a lot of people 
are right when they say that what happens in San Francisco is going to happen in the rest of the country 10 years later. It's sort of like a breeding ground for experimentation and innovation. You know, you see the self-driving cars, you know, they're testing them out. They're having a trial run. And when you see these pop-ups that are getting funded, that's an attempt to recreate. That's an attempt to bring new creative talent to the city. And I think that we're going to see that everywhere. Boy, I hope you're right about that. That that would be kind of awesome. I, I do have to ask, uh, then we can move off the, the location part of this, but um, how is how is Florida? Does it does it have any sort of like real vibrancy right now? Or is that partly hype? I, I ask in part because I have a friend who just texted me today who was previously living in the panhandle of Florida, not exactly Miami, but he now lives in, in Fresno. And he was telling me that Fresno is superior to at least the panhandle of Florida, which does not speak too highly of the panhandle of Florida because Fresno is not exactly like a cultural hub. What do you, what do you think though? I know that you've spent a lot of time in Miami and, and like cool places like that, but like, what do you, what do you think about Florida right now? Well, I grew up in the South Florida area. I was born in Miami and then we were hit by Hurricane Andrew. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to the suburbs of Fort Lauderdale. Um, South Florida, it isn't really very creative. There definitely aren't a lot of smart people. There definitely isn't a lot of new money. There's a lot of old money. There, There isn't an entrepreneurial spirit. But there is a good underground scene if you're into stuff like goth and industrial and there's even a a good fetish scene you know um which is really commodified in san francisco Mm. for example the the fetish scene in the bay area it's very standard um where in south florida you know it's still kind of edgy um and because of the politics in florida you know where there's a lot of um, restrictions on sexual freedom, um, you, you see people that are more sexually liberated, you know, like actually doing their thing in Florida in a way that isn't generic. You know, um, like you, mm. you can go to Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco and you, you can be bored. You know, you, you can go to Pride in San Francisco, you're going to be bored. Um, at least I will, somebody like me. Um, but yeah, you go to like a small club in South Florida, where there's just like 50 people doing their thing, like that, that's exciting. Hmm. Um, yeah. There is a good crypto community in Miami. I think it definitely could stand to have more artistic output, but there are a lot of people that have moved from California and New York to Florida, and they've begun making crypto a thing. You know, um, or at least they were for a while. Now, now crypto is dead. Um, but there, there is still, you know, that that spirit of, I guess, financial innovation. You know, where they're yeah. trying to turn Miami into, you know, like a, a network state, so to speak. Um, so, so that's kind of cool. Um, I, I went to Hereticon in Miami uh, about a year and a half ago. It was uh. I guess like Forbidden Thought Conference. Um, it was really cool. Um, lo- lots of just incredible people there. Um, but the majority of them weren't from Florida. They were tech investors 
that were coming to Miami to just party for a week, you know, and the, and the party was great. Um, but how many of them actually live there? You know, it's a little bit different from what you might think. So there, there is a migration to Florida, but a lot of people, they're, they're just staying there for a couple months. Um, how many people have actually bought property in Florida that are starting tech companies? Not, not that many. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that there's a little bit going on, but it, it is anti-intellectual. You know, um, you, you've still got that old town kind of like, why are you thinking so much? You can just relax and, you know, you, you got God right here. Why are you worrying about all that stuff? Um, which huh. I, I'm not really a fan of, um, <laughs> but I, I try to just like be open to all of it. You know, I, I try to like not think that I'm better than anybody because, you know, I, I've been a little bit more culturally inclined, you know, just meet everybody where they're at. There, there's good people everywhere. There's bad people everywhere. Yeah, that, that's for sure. That's a very good point. Well, I want to pivot to your your Substack, The Cultural Futurist. And this article that you wrote recently, it was called My Predictions for the New Year Future. And one thing that was interesting about it, and you lay out you know, a number of, of specific predictions, maybe we can talk about them a little bit, but uh, for example, you talk about pop-ups and, and speakeasies and a couple, couple of things like that. And I noticed kind of like a theme that it has a lot to do with entrepreneurs. Do you see that entrepreneurs being a, a large part of how the near future is going to be shaped? Yeah, especially with what's happening to the job market and the disasters of the gig economy. You see influencers that are starting their own businesses. You know, it's sort of like starting your own company is the new worker. The entrepreneur mm. is the new worker now. You kind of have to start a company to survive. And the current economy, you've got everybody starting their own companies. And so in a way, entrepreneurship has become, there's, there's a lower barrier to entry now. It's not just something that somebody can do. Like, hey, I'm, I'm going to start the next Google. You've got right. people that are starting their own companies everywhere because the current economy as it is is collapsing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about how, I mean, I was just this moment thinking about this, like, you know, I would love to start some sort of a company. I do have ideas all the time. None of them go anywhere. I have a, I have a buddy who just started an interesting company. I'm kind of sort of a part of, but um, then, then I was kind of thinking about this. So like, I guess in a sense, I am kind of, kind of an entrepreneur in that I have my own literary journal. We put out books. I also, you know, do this podcast and do a lot of writing that every now and then sometimes sort of kind of makes a little money. It's just hard to monetize things. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the kind of the problem for someone like me who, you know, I do a lot of creative activities. It's just hard to monetize it. So it's hard to, hard to call that like, you know, a, a job, even though I am kind of sort of entrepreneurial. I don't know. Like this is one of the things that, that I've always still kind of seen UBI as being part of the future as we do give, you know, potentially hand off more jobs to, to AI and, and robots in general in, in the future. What, what, what do you think is going to be the, I don't know, like for, for 
the general person who maybe has an entrepreneurial spirit, and like you're saying, it's probably gonna be more and more people. Everybody has a podcast now, for example. Um, is are people's like livelihoods gonna be tied to that still, or do you think that people's livelihoods are in the future gonna be kind of decoupled from whatever you do, like to 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 benefit broader society? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword because for every one person who has a successful podcast or a Substack that's generating a substantial income, you've got, you know, a few hundred people who, you know, we're just doing it as a hobby. I certainly yeah. don't make very much money on my Substack. I, I've only been on two podcasts in my entire life that I was paid for and they were very modest amounts. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't see myself as an entrepreneur of podcasts or of substacks. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people like us, we're, we're doing it as a hobby, you know, and we, we've got some supplemental income from it. We've got some side mm -hmm. income, you know, um, but it, it's definitely not our main thing, you know, and I think that that's the majority of people that are writing and doing podcasts and doing YouTube channels. Um, there are some creators that have successfully monetized it. That is their full-time job now. Um, but if you're like me, you have to work a regular job and you're doing all of this stuff on the side. You know, um, you might start a company while you're working. You mm -hmm. might be consulting and working and doing gigs and having a podcast. We're seeing a lot of multi-hyphenates that are popping up. And I think that's going to continue. We've got our world of everything now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really do agree that I think that, for example, uh, uh, in, in your article, you highlight that you're expecting to see more and more shops become pop-up shops by 2026. This, I think, is like totally going to be the case just because, I, I mean, I think that I mean, in cities, people aren't really going downtown for office work as much anymore. And so someone who might start a sandwich shop in the downtown of San Francisco, say, maybe they would have way better luck starting a little pop-up shop where people actually live, like closer to more of like a neighborhoody vibe. And you, you see that a lot. I mean, like we've already seen the whole food truck culture just explode and it hasn't, it hasn't gone, gone away that I can tell it all. Interestingly, Devin Carson, who's my, my typically my co-host on this podcast, he goes up to Montana once a year and has a little kind of a pop-up waffle sandwich coffee shop that he does in a, a little Montana town that gets a lot of tourists. And boy, that like the way he describes it, it's so like exciting and so so invigorating. It's just that right now a lot of that isn't normalized, but I think that you're kind of saying that that will become normalized. And so that might just be what people gravitate towards rather than signing a lease on a on a brick and mortar. Yeah, that's how I see it. I mean, I think it's going to be pretty extreme. I believe that 95% of shops are going to be pop-up shops in 2026. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of impermanence now, and it's really hard to purchase property with all of the restrictions and the increasing prices of property. It's really hard to just buy a building and do your thing. You're going through so much Kafka-esque red tape, and I just don't think that that's a sustainable model. Pop-up shops are really, really popular now and they're only going to get more popular we are going to be seeing farmers markets everywhere 
you know, like indoor malls, they were replaced by outdoor shopping centers. Now you're going to see outdoor shopping centers. They're going to be replaced by pop-ups. It's going to be brick and mortar stores and they're going to become farmer's markets. They're going to be pop-ups everywhere. You're going to be like in a massive rent fair and it's not just going to be a bunch of little businesses. It's going to be everything. Corporations are going to create their own pop-ups. You're going to see thousands of pop-ups created by Disney, thousands of pop-ups created by Pixar. It's going to be the new model for commerce. It's going to be the everything. I, I can I can definitely see that. So you also talk about speakeasies. What do you what do you exactly mean by speakeasies and how will they, you know, be a part of this? Well, if you've been paying attention for the past couple of years, you're seeing what I would call the death of the town square. People are becoming more and more private. They're retreating into group chats. Um, this philosopher, I don't want to pronounce his name wrong. Um, he writes for Ribbon Farm. He talks about what he refers to as the cozy web, which is people getting cozy in their own private back channels, sharing screenshots and links through Discord and Telegram and signal and i think group chats are new mediums of communication that are taking the place of social media as we know it today now there really aren't that many people that are sticking around on twitter because you know it's the new 4chan um if the reds sucks <laughs> let's yeah. just leave it at that threats is horrible um mastodon and blue sky are you know not very sustainable. No, nobody's going to really stay on them for very long. So people are really hungry for real life communities. And mm -hmm. people have always wanted exclusive and private experiences. There's always been this desire for people to retreat into their group chats. So it makes sense to me that the next logical step would be for people to begin creating speakeasies taking the people in the group chats and inviting them into these private little kind of small gatherings. You know, they might start as pop-up shops. They might start as, you know, little underground events and basements of larger establishments. They're going to be members only. They're going to, you might need a token to get into them. You might need a little private invite. It's going to be very word of mouth. And this is a way that people are going to retreat from the town square, which is no longer a place that people want to associate in, um, you know, with all of the, the cancellations and all of the shaming, the viral TikTok videos of people filming each other. It's, you know, Black Mirror infinitely, you know, it, it's bad. Nobody wants it anymore. So we're going to be private. Our lives are going to be private. Speakeasies are going to be a place where people can privately communicate and interact with each other. They're going to be sharing ideas. They're going to be starting companies together. They're going to be having great conversations. They're going to be building. They're going to be invite only. They're going to be a lot of fun. And a lot of entrepreneurs are going to be starting speakeasies. It's not necessarily going to be like, hey, I just built a new AI company. It's going to be like, hey, come to my speakeasy. Let's hang out. It's going to be community is the commodity. 
I recently wrote about a similar thing about there's this guy in Australia, I forget his name, but he's he's some you know multi-billionaire dude who's starting a private club for, you know, he's he's talking about how these these old clubs like in in London, they're typically revolving around, you know, just men's clubs where you drink a lot and you gossip and it's kind of toxic and kind of terrible. But, you know, because it's exclusive, it draws like a lot of, you know, movers and shakers in society. He's doing that in Australia, except minus alcohol. And it's with a lot of longevity, um, you know, uh, uh, products and 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 activities uh, to, to make you like healthy and live longer, but it's like highly exclusive. And the article that I wrote was about how there's kind of no reason why non-billionaires, like just normal people couldn't do the exactly the same thing of just, you know, maybe you have a garage or, or, or you know, a backyard or whatever, like get your friends together and recreate the same exact experience. And you know, as I was writing this article, I was convincing myself that this would be kind of an awesome thing to do. And I kind of weirdly, had that world when I was in my early twenties and just like lived with dudes who, who we all had similar in- interests. And so we kind of were doing that and it seems so natural and so awesome that I totally could see that also becoming normalized. I don't know, at this point in my life, personally, I'm so, you know, the new baby thing has really just made me just like, just, just like be like home so often. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could, I could definitely see a, a world where, uh, where, where that is the case. I, you know, I'm, I'm also so interested in this idea of the group chat for whatever it's worth. Um, Liv Bory uh, uh, recently, or I think today, tweeted group chats may be the world's greatest invention. I'm not sure if she read your piece or is, is channeling <laughs> you. <laughs> Uh, we have a lot of intersections, me and her. I actually saw her at that conference in Miami, funny enough. Oh, funny. Huh. I think she's correct. I think that the trickling down of entrepreneurship, billionaire thing, everybody's going to be doing that thing, I think is very, very accurate. Um, and just because not all entrepreneurs are going to be super wealthy that doesn't mean there's not going to be an onslaught of entrepreneurs that are starting all of these speakeasies and pop-up shops and it's going to evolve from these group chats group chats are the greatest invention they are the most popular mode of communication now you're not seeing the majority of people communicate on twitter i think it's called x now you're you're not seeing the majority of people communicate on x i mean if they are communicating on x they're doing it through group chats people yeah are retreating into private life. It's all about private life now, personal communication between trusted, vetted groups of close friends. It's very hard to get into these groups if you don't already know these people. The level of trust is very low in our society. We have a low trust society now, and Mm -hmm. it's hard to really get in if you haven't been in for a while. So I think Silicon Valley, <laughs> they're going to come in and find a way to capitalize on this. And they're going to create, I guess you could call it a corporate version of WhatsApp. It's going to be a centralized mm-hmm. group chat app. It's going to be like a streamlined Discord. A lot of people, they have trouble using Discord because, yeah. you know, the UX, it's, it's kind of clunky um it's it's kind of a pain in the ass actually um 
you know, Telegram, you, you feel, you know, a little bit like you're in a private hacker world, which is great for people like you and me, you know, um, but the, the average person, they, they don't want to mess with Discord. They don't want to mess with Telegram. And so I think Silicon Valley is going to find a way to create a centralized group chat at where people can communicate with their select group of people. And that is going to be the selling point in itself. It's going to be easier for people to create group chats. And it's going to be like WhatsApp, but for influencers, you know, which is kind of sinister. Um, but I think that mm -hmm. that's what they're going to go for. They're going to create a WhatsApp for influencers. They're going to create a streamlined, easy to use Discord that everybody is going to be able to use. Group chats are going to be the feature itself. It's all group chats all the way down. You know, when Threads launched last week, I think it was last week, I, I had this thought, you know, it automatically populates with people who you follow and who follow you on Instagram, which is not an audience I've at all cultivated. A lot of it is people just from like real life who over the years have kind of trickled onto it. And it's kind of like, eh, that was part of like the lack of appeal of threads for me was it was kind of like the people who I don't really have an interest in necessarily doing the, the micro blogging thing with. I, I just had this thought of, you know, we don't have this yet, but maybe with the power of AI that is tapping into, you know, our lives in so many different ways. What if there was a, an app like that that populated with people who you would automatically connect with and jive with and think are awesome, you know? So it, it was like, it just, you all of a sudden you log into a new app and you have 1,000 followers <clears throat> and you follow 1,000 people and all of them are people that you are totally like tapped into and just, oh my God, how do I not know you exist? You're You're awesome, you know? That, that oh, yeah. maybe would be scary for some, you know, reasons in terms of people's privacy. I don't know. But like at the same time, like humans want to connect with people that you can build shit with, tell cool stories with, and like really use to, to augment your, your life. Right. And man, it's so hard. It's because of the technology, it's harder and harder and harder to find like in real life friends rather than easier and easier. And yeah. that's a problem. I feel like that's a, that's a problem. It's definitely a problem, and I think that Meta really screwed up with how they launched Threads. They had the ability to import people's Facebook followers onto Threads, but instead they imported people's Instagram followers yeah. onto Threads. Now, as somebody who has around 5K Facebook followers who no longer uses Facebook because Facebook is no longer relevant, it's not even in the picture, I was really hoping that I'd be able to migrate my Facebook friends and followers to threads, but I wasn't able to. I was only able to migrate my Instagram followers. And of all the Instagram followers that I migrated, only about 20 of them even news threads. So when I started scrolling threads, it was just a bunch of corporate brands. Yeah. Me too. 14 year olds giving self help advice. I mean, like random gurus that had millions of followers talking about it's okay to think positively and they got thousands of likes. Life is good, thousands of likes. Hey, just did that thing over there, hundreds and thousands of likes. I'm completely astroturfed, bought and paid for, not authentic, 
not genuine communication. This is not what people want. Threads is not what people want. It is for brands and it is for really, really well-funded influencers. It's not usable now. Um, it, it is possible that threads will get better, but I'm not counting on it. What mm -hmm. I'm counting on is a centralized group chat app where people can privately communicate an easier discord. And all of these small communities that people are communicating in are going to lead to these pop-ups and these mm -hmm. speakeasies. We're going to see impermanence on a mass scale, people going to these little speakeasies to hang out with their small group of friends. We're going to see a return to tribalism. We're going to see people who have like-minded interests in physical spaces. And there might just be five or six people in these spaces. And it really is going to hurt people who have had the majority of their social life online, especially if they're not living in big cities like San Francisco or New York or even Boston or e even Chicago. You know, their whole social life has been online. And now, you know, like Twitter is X <laughs> threads and <laughs> crap. Where, where, where are they going to go? They're going to get really lonely. So they're going to have no choice but to start their own speakeasies in their small town um, or travel across the world, you know, or the country to hang out with their internet friends and, you know, re rebuild from scratch. We're, we're going to see a lot of experimental living communities, people purchasing their own lands and, you know, building a city for their internet tribes. We're, we're going to see network states on a large scale society is forever going to change we're bifurcating into millions of different nodes the uh the new york times had a piece the other day about how uh the solve for male loneliness is on the pickleball court and kind of, kind of the same <laughs> idea. I mean, I think pickleball is like super lame. Uh, I'm like a tennis player, so I have to hate on pickleball, but it's not a bad idea. I mean, just like, especially for dudes getting together and doing the physical activity is, I mean, that's like instant mental health benefits right there. But kind of, kind of back to your point about where we're headed with society and moving, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious how far you think this is going to go because it reminds me a little bit about uh, FM 2030 and a prediction he made in one of his books. He was an old futurist from like the 70s. Fascinating oh, yeah. guy. But he mm -hmm. uh, he predicted that we're going to eventually kind of be done with cities as they currently exist and that we will just uh, have, have effectively pop up cities where people will just migrate to certain places for a specific time and a specific purpose, do their thing and then pack up and roll on to, to the next place. And cities will be like cool places to visit as museums, that sort of thing. He also said that this is going to happen with like family structures and maybe even nation states. And I'm, I'm kind of curious how, how far you think this is going to expand in terms of the current you know, institutions that exist now, um, like even fa the family institution, the city institution, local governments, how, how much is this all going to break down? Do you think maybe looking out slightly, you know, into the future? It's funny that you mentioned FM 2030, because I think that this prediction specifically that he made is a hundred percent accurate. And mm. he was 
so ahead of his time. He saw all of this coming and he he's right. This is where we're headed. These little nation states of group chats. We're, we're gonna have nation states of group chats. We're gonna have mm -hmm. massive splits in cities and countries. We're gonna have hundreds and thousands of little enclaves. We're gonna have speakeasies where people start families. We're gonna have tiny little nations with their own forms of government. We're gonna see so many experimental societies. It's gonna be, yeah, like a bunch of different museums, different ways of life and different little spots. It's really, reality as we know it is forever changing. And one of the things that I see coming, a lot of people don't agree me, they don't agree with me on this. But I actually think that the majority of our population is going to completely leave what I refer to as digital social media. They're not going to be on, on Twitter, X, or threads, or Instagram. They're going to be hanging out in real life in these speakeasies and pop-ups. And I think that it's going to get really exciting in about 20. 27, we're going to see, you know, like Meow Wolf and the Dengo exhibit mm -hmm. with all the augmented reality live experiences. We're going to see these immersive art installations. These immersive art installations are going to be in real life. Social media is going to be physical. Social media will no longer be online. The majority of people are going to leave the internet unless they're working or sending email or sending messages. The online world, it's done. We're going back to the flesh. Social media is in-person and the in-person social media, it's gonna be all about these live experiences. Augmented reality is gonna be included. So they're gonna be really fun. You're gonna be able to go to a museum and you're gonna be able to immersively interact with the exhibits there. You're going to be able to go to an art gallery. The art is going to pop out. You're going to be able to feel like you can touch it. You're going to be able to feel like you're inside of it. It's going to be really, really exciting. And, you know, we're going to go through some hard times. People are going to be really lonely. They're going to have nowhere to go in digital social media because digital social media is collapsing. So they're hungering for real life connections. Um, but this is where it's going real life immersive experiences so even you know you so you go to a pop-up that let's just say macy's right you're going to a pop-up at macy's you're going shopping the clothes are going to pop out at you in augmented reality and you're going to be able to hang out with the designers of the clothing they're going to appear to you as avatars. They're going to tell you how they made the clothes. They're going to give you intimate experiences so you can get up and close and personal with the brands. It's going to be pretty cool. I mean, a lot of it is going to be pretty cringe. And because it's going to be cool and cringe, the people that find it to be cringe, they're going to start their own speakeasies and they're going to start their own immersive exhibits and they're going to start their own installations and these installations are going to have everything that they've wanted to build to come to life in this augmented reality form and these in-person platforms are the future of social media social media is going to become fully physical 
I want to pivot to talking about the transhumanism versus futurism divide. Mm -hmm. This is something that we talked about last time we spoke, I think, but mm -hmm. you've kind of moved away from the world of transhumanism, just that terminology and some of the perhaps baggage associated with it. And so now you've embraced futurism as like the, the term, as the umbrella term for a lot of your projects. Can you explain kind of like if you still think about those two terms in that way and what how exactly you think about them? Yeah, so I think futurism is a much wider term that encompasses a lot more transhumanism. It's kind of strictly related to life extension now. I feel like that's very limiting. Futurism, it encompasses what's going to happen in the next five years, in the next 20 years, and the next 50, and the next 100 years. It, incorporates technology, it incorporates cultural trends, it incorporates social interactions, it incorporates digital production. It isn't just, hey, we're gonna do this to our bodies so we can live longer. So, I mean, transhumanism is cool, you know? I mean, transhumanism was my thing for like a decade at least. I was all about the transhumanism, but I found it very limiting in terms of scope. It's like, okay, we're gonna enhance our bodies. We're gonna live forever. We're gonna do cool things with machines, but what happens in the future? What happens to us as a population, as a species? What are we going to produce? What are we going to create? How is that gonna affect the wider timeline? How is that gonna change the economy? How is that gonna change society? And that mm -hmm. is where futurism comes in. I, I mean, I like that a lot. And that's what I've actually learned. I mean, this podcast is called Team Futurism, for example. And it was partly like you kind of talked me into that, into seeing that, that you know, transhumanism is a little bit limiting. Interestingly, over the past couple of years, it seems like there have been some real developments in the longevity space that does actually make me more excited about that than I used to be. Are you excited about the longevity thing or do you think it's it's still a little gimmicky? I think that the best part of longevity is biohacking. I think that people doing amazing things to their body and transcending the limitations of the human form is by far the most interesting aspect of transhumanism. It's not just about living forever, which is cool. Have you seen uh, Elon Musk's new... Changing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Have you, have you, have you seen Elon Musk's new update in this world. There was this article in Fortune this week. The title was Elon Musk wants Tesla and Neuralink to build a cyborg body to turn amputees into the bionic man. Any thoughts? I love it. I, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I think Elon is a weirdo. And yeah. I think that he has a lot of fuck you money to do what he wants and say what he wants and that he's doing a lot of incredible things. I have a lot of respect for it. I think that his, you know, trolling is a little bit juvenile, but I, I also think he's somewhat of a misfit genius. And I think that this is a cool aspect of transhumanism, right? Um, we're seeing people that are inspired by sci-fi movies like Tron that are like, hey, let me give that a shot. Um, but this is also futurism it's not just transhumanism it's not just okay we're gonna do this to our bodies so we can live longer it's like we're gonna create these things so we can change the future on a longer timeline and we can make things happen that are going to affect our social landscape we're going to affect our social body 
And, and this is futurism. Elon Musk is a futurist. He might be doing transhuman things, but what he's really doing is futurism. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you that we talk about this on this podcast quite a bit that a lot of his, ever since he took over Twitter, he's just been so obnoxious online. And I wish he would just like shut the hell up and just like do awesome, awesome shit like this, like creating a bionic man. That to me yeah, is, because exactly. no one else is doing that. So many people are trying to create a cool space in social media or or even payments or whatever. I just don't feel like that. Like that's his his lane naturally. I think, think he's awkward mm. about it and something. I don't know. It turns me off a little bit, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I, yeah, definitely. And I mean, my thing is cultural futurism. So I understand the cultural aspect and, you know, politics downstream from culture and yada yada. So I get what he's doing with Twitter X, but that's not where his real talent lies. Like you said, anybody can do that. He should focus on the bionic man and not just the bionic man but the social implications of the bionic man now we've got bionic people we've got a society of bionic people interacting with each other what's going to come out of that how is artificial intelligence going to affect that how is that going to change policy how is that going to change the economy how is that going to you know enrich our population well, in this Fortune article, it does talk about how the inspiration for part of this is some movie called The Million Dollar Man from like the 70s or 80s or something like that. And I guess Elon, this article is paywall, so I have not read the whole thing. So maybe I'm not, <laughs> maybe I actually missing some of this, but it sounded like uh, Elon Musk said that he wants to create a thousand dollar man. So like directly referencing this movie, I believe. That to me is kind of fascinating because most people who are doing awesome shit in the world, they kind of like directly were influenced by books and movies from the past. So that does speak to the power of, I don't know, authors and, and like creative things, but don't know what to necessarily do with the, uh, the entrepreneurial side of it sometimes. And that brings me to like to, to another one of your articles that was in on your, uh, your sub stack. It was called uh, Building Beauty, the Aesthetics of Civilization. And there's this quote, I'll just read part of it. Um, Can aesthetics be used to shift the tides of civilization? Fashion is architecture of culture. Meanwhile, architecture is a fashion of history. Both fashion and architecture play a major role in shaping how civilizations thrive and develop, ranging from the body of the people to the entertainment of the era. Talk to me a little bit about that. And I know that this uh, this article that you wrote, this was, this was going back like a year, um, but I think that this led to uh, a group chat of your own where you talked about this with, with a lot of people or a webinar or something like that. Talk to me about this idea because this to me is really fascinating. Yeah, so the creators of culture, whether they're fashion designers or architects or whether they're painters, whether they're writers, Let's take the obvious example, William Gibson, right? He writes a book called Narromancer. 30 years later, people are building it. You get Neil Stevenson, he writes a book called Snow Crush. That's what we're living in right now. Micro nodes of civilizations of like-minded people and isolated tribes, these group chats, 
we're living in the diamond age right now. You've got designers like Alexander McQueen who were building models that were essentially cybernetically influenced. They had LED lights on, they had biomechanical parts of their clothing, they were on the runway expressing themselves creatively. Now you've got people that are building these outfits to augment each other, to augment themselves. So fashion is the muse of the media. You see these units of cultural production, these fashion designers, you see these artists, they put out these ideas. Then you see these entrepreneurs, they look at these things as researchers. They use it to form their companies. Now you've got all these companies that were built based on the ideas of these fashion designers and these artists and these writers. And without the cultural production, the entrepreneurs, what, what are they going to research? What are they going to look at? What are they going to build? They've got no inspiration. They've got no cultural direction. So, you know, they're, they're finteching themselves into oblivion, hmm. right? Um, and then you've got geniuses who, like David Holtz, that are creating mid-journey. You know, that are taking all the artistic output in the world and creating algorithms so people everywhere can make art now. If it mm -hmm. wasn't for all of these incredible artists that were making all of these things, we, we would have no mid-journey. Mid-journey is completely right. revolutionizing art. I'm really fascinated in the idea about how, I mean, just the power and the influence of fashion. This is so outside my wheelhouse. I'm just like a typical dude who, like I wear a t-shirt and jeans and I, I don't relate to it, but I have a friend of mine, uh, Sam Elliott. He's been on this podcast, great musician. And he is, he's, he's like tried to convince me that uh, fashion is the greatest art form. And also like he's on this parallel level that it has, you know, this cultural influence. And, you know, one, one thing, I don't have enough time, unfortunately, to, to really get into this, although I'd, I'd kind of like to. But um, one question that I have for you, because this is just interesting to me about fashion, is that I feel like a lot of different types of art right now, writing and visual arts in particular, are, you know, AI is just becoming, a, we're, we're, we're questioning how these art forms are gonna perpetuate in the future given the power of AI, right? Um, surely they'll be used as a tool, but what does that mean for the common writer? Like who knows, you know? But fashion, it is created kind of by dudes like my friend Sam or like you people who maybe aren't even necessarily in the fashion industry, but they are being creative with their look in the world. And I, I don't think that that's anything that AI will even touch. Like maybe, maybe right. fashion designers will use AI to influence like what clothes they design, but they're probably a real talk and a still put a needle into thread to design the thing because there's something. So it's like a craft, right? It's a, it's a craft. And yeah, again, like like people like you and Sam, I think are, are you're not gonna use AI to figure out what to wear tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's just gonna oh. be like you're you're gonna stumble into it maybe. I, I don't know. What what do you do you think that uh, this is my question? Do you think that fashion is immune to being overtaken by AI and robots, or do you think it's part of it? Or how do you see fashion with the the coming of AI? 
Well, I think there's a common misconception that a lot of things are being overtaken by AI, which might seem true at the moment, but AI is enhancing everything, including fashion. Um, I mentioned Alexander McQueen because he's one of my favorite designers and he was a predecessor to cyberpunk when he dressed his models after cyborgs. I mean, people like him and Louis Vuitton, even, you know, body modification and biohacking pioneers that came on stage suspended in corsets that they customized to fit their body. These, you could call them fashion designers, um, but you could also call them performancers. You could also call them models. Um, they became what I would consider living avatars. Um, if you want to have some like old subcultural lore, a lot of the models in the goth industrial scene became the prototypes for characters like Lara Croft in Tomb mm. Raider and like Elizabeth Slander and the girl with the dragon tattoo. These were based off of people just going to the clubs and dressing up in their own unique ways. And they became living avatars that were later later used in, you know, games like Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I was actually used in Cyberpunk, in Cyberpunk 2077. Like like pictures of me that were on the internet from over a decade ago. They they were modeled for the game. Um, and, and this happens all the time. You, you've got people just expressing themselves and they're like, hey, I want to make this collab fit. I want to wear this thing. And like suddenly you're seeing yourself as a video game character. Um, which is really fascinating. Um, I, I wrote this other article. It's uh, about the history of cyberpunk and the chronicles of cyberpunk as a fashion movement. Hmm. Um, you, you would see cyberpunk parties in LA where models were suspended in front of live audiences. There were incredible soundtracks. You were blending fashion and music hmm. and machinery. Um, you've got people like the Victoria Modesta, she had a leg injury at birth and she amputated her leg. She became a bionic pop artist. So she takes her bionic leg and she performs at festivals. You, you see so much of this. You see people that are just dressed up who suddenly 10 years later, you see their clothing in a video game. You see their style in a video game. And it, this continues year after year this is why I say fashion is the muse of the media. Regular people that are dressing up become the prototypes of the movie characters, the video game characters. It's all connected. And these fashion designers, they're kind of like the authors in a way. They're laying down the blueprints for the future of civilization, the building beauty civilization is being created through these cultural production units that that is that is very fascinating there is definitely a lot there i'm just thinking in terms of like the video game space the idea in life is to not be a non-player character <laughs> kind of a hack to do that is to dress as a leading role right so i mean yeah. like in terms of your own story for your life that you're building for yourself a hack is just to dress as the lead character and inhabit that role, perhaps, something like that. Yeah, you can sort of become, I guess, like if you're old enough 
to have seen Fight Club when it first came out. I'm showing my age. You can become your Tyler Durden, right? Like, mm -hmm. especially online, you've got people, I guess you call them like incels, you know, like their life isn't too good. Um, they create a, an altar, an identity online where they can become their ideal selves, right? Um, and suddenly that identity comes to life and now they've become the character that they've created online and they're epitomizing a new identity. And what we're seeing with people that are creating all these alternative identities, you see people that have six, seven, eight alters where they're acting out different facets of their personalities. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit odd to see yourself in a video game. You know, like if, if you were a fashion influencer back in the day, you know, and then you, you're like, wait a minute, that, that's me in that video game. How'd that happen? Um, and so, you know, you, you can be angry. You can be like, oh, they, they stole my look. Um, but th this is just capitalism. This is just how it works. People create, people build, new people come in, they do their research. They're like, hey, that's a good idea. I want to use this to create this new thing, right? And now suddenly we, we've got these video games. We've got these companies like Mid Journey. We've got stable fusion we we've got dolly all of these are created by outputs mm -hmm. of artists throughout the centuries now you see salvador dolly is an aesthetic itself there are filters right to make your art look like salvador dolly um and i don't want to give too much away um because i have been dabbling in fashion and ai a lot um but i don't think that it's really about AI replacing fashion designers. What I did when I was using AI was combined the looks of some of my favorite fashion designers to create a new aesthetic. So hmm. I took the okay. style of Alexander McQueen and I put in cyberpunk, I put in glam, I put in goth, Right. Um, maybe I'm getting a little too personal, um, but, but it generated <laughs> these cyborg models for me. I'm like, oh, oh my God, okay. I, okay. I, I, got a, yeah. I got a fashion company right here. This is a fashion company. So, I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. It's almost like we're so overwhelmed by these new possibilities of artificial intelligence that it's really hard to grasp like where we're even at with it. Like AI is a toy that people, mm -hmm are just starting to play with. And I think it's a big misconception to say that AI is replacing fashion designers or musicians. What's happening is that fashion designers and musicians are using AI to create new forms of music and to create new kinds of fashion. It's all connected. All of it is part of this evolution of civilization, the beauty of civilization that's being created. That's really fascinating. There, yeah, there is so much there. That, that you'll have to tell me more sometime about your uh, your fashion endeavors with AI. That is very fascinating. One last question. We've talked a lot about, you know, futurism ideas, and I want to talk about just very quickly culture broadly. I've been asking a lot of people this question. Everyone has kind of a fascinating answer. What do you think is going to be the next hot button issue after, let's say, trans? Ooh, okay. 
So, I mean, I, I got into this in my future prediction blog. I think that we're going to see a big rollback in the restrictions that people have on medications. Hmm. I think it's oh, okay. really, yeah, so this is in my predictions for the near future blog. I think it's really hard for people to get their medications now because of the opioid crisis. And it's causing a lot of people to suffer that have documented pain conditions. They're not able to get their meds now. Um, people that have documented mental health issues, they're not able to get their meds because they're controlled substances. So what I think is going to happen is that there's going to be a massive upheaval of people that are unable to get their meds. And I think it's going to go all the way up to celebrities. And I think that this is going to create a lot of rollbacks and current restrictions. But I also think it's going to create new chemicals what we're seeing is psychedelic therapy now. We're seeing people that are doing ketamine for depression. We're seeing ma magic mushrooms that are being legalized. MDMA to treat PTSD. We've got organizations like MAPS that are pushing for the legalization of these substances to treat people for mental health issues and for physical health issues. So I think we're gonna see a widespread change in the way that medication is administered, the way that people use substances. We're gonna see psychedelic therapy on a mass scale. It's gonna help hundreds and thousands of people. The drug industry is forever gonna change. The pharmacies aren't able to cater to the needs of people that have unique issues. We are not a one-size-fits-all society. So we're going to see very personalized psychedelic medicine treatments, and we're going to see a rollback of restrictions on current substances. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah, that is very interesting. Well, Rachel Haywar, uh, where can people find out more about you? You have kind of backed away from social media recently, so I'm curious how people can find out more about what you're up to. Well, they can go to my blog, which is culturalfuturist.substack.com. They can subscribe and join as members, and they can communicate with me on Substack. I've been using Substack a lot just to talk to a small, dedicated fan base that I have. I'm no longer, you know, on the, the big social media channels. I just want to connect personally with people who my message resonates with. I'm all about the private life now. So follow my Substack, join me there. Say hello on Substack, let's talk. I love it, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, I definitely recommend Rachel's Substack, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on, it was, it was a great talk. Thanks, it was good talking to you again.